Welcome to Breaking the Chain, where we deep dive into the lives and experiences of entrepreneurs looking to shake up, change, and innovate their industries. In this podcast, we explore the challenges, successes, and everyday ups and downs of individuals fighting in the trenches for their dreams to become a reality. I'm your host, Nathaniel Chapman. Today, I'm joined by Alex Cook, CEO and founder of Phase 3 Search, an executive search agency focused around life sciences and biopharmaceuticals. Welcome back to episode four of Breaking the Chain. Welcome, Alex. Welcome aboard. Welcome on. Hey, Nathaniel. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I am... Um, I feel like more nervous. I was saying to you before this episode of you coming on the podcast because we know each other so well. <laughs> it's true. I've known Alex, goodness, it's been five years? Yeah, about that, about that. Yeah, so our journey kind of begins. We'll obviously get into Alex's journey in a little bit and go through his story and his experiences of starting an executive search firm focused on the, in the life sciences sector. We started as, I think I was a researcher when you were a senior consultant at Proco Global. Wow. It was a long time ago. <laughs> it was a long time ago. And it's kind of interesting how our stories have kind of, I guess, come through. Well, one, how incredible your story was. You were a big inspiration for my own business. Mm. And I was really keen to get you on the show because we speak to guys that are innovating within their industries. And a big part of that is also building their teams and, and growing their businesses. And I think we'll have a lot of really interesting topics to talk about, not just, you know, focused on your awesome career as well. Well, that's that's kind. I hope so. I've got to say I'm a little bit nervous as well. You know, I listen to podcasts and they often have these awesome guests. So hopefully I've got something interesting to say. <laughs> no, you are an awesome guest. Like we'll, especially when we launched the podcast, we wanted to look at innovators and individuals that were plunging into new industries. And you've started this company completely from scratch. You're completely self-funded. You've worked really hard to get to where you are today. And you know, you are growing and helping add to very big businesses across biopharmaceuticals in the United States and now and now here in Europe, right? So been an interesting two years for you. <laughs> it certainly has. Yeah, it's funny, right? I'm not sure you ever wake up and, you know, when you're a kid, kind of turn around and say, I'm going to do this when I'm older. I mean, some people do, I guess. And maybe they want to be a fireman yeah. <laughs> or a chef or a doctor or a surgeon or even a dancer or something like that. But <laughs> You know, and yeah, I'm not sure if you'd asked me when I was, you know, 11, what did I want to be? I think maybe Rockstar was probably the number one thing, but that was about well, it. For people tuning in, this is a good plug-in for, I guess, your company as well. So we'll give you, give you a little bit of a plug-in there. But what is Executive Search? You know, what is, you know, if people haven't encountered it before and maybe give us a quick introduction to your business as well. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, Executive Search, in essence, is often going out to find a very specific skill set a slate of people who have a bunch of very specific skill sets which fulfill a, a business need. Typically, they're, they're very, very hard to find, and it may be linked to a particular business goal in mind. So in terms of my business, our mission and, and why I set it up was really to find the leaders that can transform biotech companies and help save and transform the lives of patients all over the world. And, you know, my industry being biotech, you know, we're really lucky that a lot of those companies that we work with are actually producing next generation medicines. So that could be 
quite literally a cure which replaces faulty genes or things like that and stops people suffering from genetic diseases. You know, obviously a hot topic right now would be COVID. Um, So, you know, we do work with people who are trying to produce the vaccine, support them doing that. And then, you know, within the companies, there are, you know, numerous different um, vertical functions. The functions that we work with uh, are basically technical operations and quality, which really are super nerdy stuff, basically. A lot of engineers, a lot of science and things like that, but really trying to take basically an R&D concept and turn it into a commercial product. For that, there's a, a whole process, a whole, I guess, million steps that you have to go through. And my job is really to find the people that can shorten the timelines to go from R&D to a commercial product. So yeah, in in short, that's what I do. Um, I guess in support of that as well, we actually do a tremendous amount of, of coaching, coaching of careers of people and actually trying to get them to, to really think about, you know, how do they perform with intention in order to have the greatest impact they can. And, you know, maybe that's something which is a little bit unusual for my industry and that side of things. But that's it's probably us in a nutshell. I really liked, um, we've talked about when you were talking about getting your name and, and what your name would actually mean. And phase three is kind of the final stage, I guess, before product goes through to commercial manufacturing, right? So that had been a big part of, I know that's a lot of what you focus on now is taking companies from, you know, R&D phases, initial concepts, through trials for people tuning in there are various different phases of clinical trials you need to go through in order for your drug product to be approved by a regulatory agency and i'd love that you used phase three as sort of like that key moment when you know you kind of find out if that drug product is gonna make it or not make it and it was incorporated in your name right that was exactly it i mean essentially phase three is a um, let's call it like a, a business focus that is the point that your company implodes or explodes, um, explode of growth, obviously, not just into tiny little pieces. And I really wanted to be associated with that critical time. With phase, you know, the phase three trials that you go through, essentially, there's a lot of preparation work which is needed in order to be successful. And then actually post phase three, people are running around quite often, um, like kind of crazy people trying to actually get a an increase in headcount and actually increasing capability in order to be able to deliver the product itself. So, yeah, um, that was that was definitely the thinking, um, and it was interesting. I think it's also been fun to to work with companies which are, are much earlier in the cycle as well. So, you know, phase one, phase two, because if you think about it the preparation that you make at your early stages really set you up for success in the long term. You know, I think that happens in all walks of life, but, you know, specifically in this case as well. So, yeah, for us, that was, that's where we wanted to be. I guess we, you know, we didn't want to be seen as just, you know, another firm out there trying to make a placement to make a dollar. We wanted to have a mission, um, which is obviously transforming and saving the lives of patients. Um, and then ultimately making sure that we are associated with those critical times that these businesses go through so that we are supportive. You know, that's, in my opinion, that's, you know, what every firm should be. You know, we are here to really make other people more successful. 
Yeah, well, you're enabling companies to be able to have access to talent that on their own, they may not have that opportunity. And you look at um, companies at early stage, phase one, phase two, or different stage of clinical trials, they don't obviously have sometimes the resources in the way of HR teams, or I know you've worked with some really cool, like on the front line, biopharmaceutical companies or looking to make a name for themselves and may not even have access to being able to, you know, find the right talent. So it's quite an interesting market to go after, you know, these companies that are at these stages that are very business critical, you know, they may have the funding, but they might not have the knowledge of not just the external market, but finding the right, finding the right individual that they need or have access to those people. That's right. I think the other thing as well is also trying to get them to think about what is the narrative and messaging that they're taking to market. When you think about science or something like that, it, it can become very dry, you know, and, and actually it can be very cool if you're into science. So if you turn around and say, you know, my platform does X, Y, Z, and it does this. If you're a scientist, you buy into that. You're like, wow, that's fascinating. You're like, absolutely. But if you are maybe not that science-driven, then you also have to think about what is the the emotional connection that you have with the people that you're bringing in. Um, I guess it goes back to the, you know, where's your why, Simon Simic, and, and, and all those kind of things. But yeah. ultimately, that's where you win people. You know, having a great idea is the easy part. Getting someone to follow it is much, much harder. And actually... I feel like a lot of positioning, a lot of, if we want to call it sales in air quotes, is actually about the getting people to, to think logically, factually, but then use those to create you know, that emotional connection to the thing that you're doing. And that actually is, is the beautiful thing about working with small and mid-sized companies is that they're very, very close to their vision. So... Yeah. We don't work too much with big uh, kind of large global 500s because there tends to be a bit of a, a delineation often where, you know, they've drifted away from the vision. There's a lot more loyalty towards shareholders, things like that. That's not wrong per se, but it's also, I think, really exciting to work with those companies who are absolutely driven by the mission every day. And... You know, when you when you say to someone, what do you do? And they go, you know what, we're we're creating the next generation of cancer treatment. Or we're giving people who had no hope the ability to live for an extra 10 or 15 years. Then I, you know, for me personally, that's what gets me excited. That's what gets me out of bed. So you yeah. know, when you've crushed a 14-hour day and you're like, just one more hour, then you know, why are you doing it? It shouldn't be. Because, you know, there's a guy in, you know, London, New York or wherever saying, you know, where's my 50K this month, Mr. Consultant? It should be, yeah. you know, what impact are you having? It's got to it's got to be more than just a, a dollar value. I love that there's a purpose and it ties into your guys' purpose. But you've nailed on a point that I find really interesting where you're like, actually, what's the purpose of the person that you're potentially recruiting and how does it align with the values of the company that you're representing? Huge. And that obviously ties into how you might sell the company to people. And especially when it's smaller businesses, you know, where you're trying to attract people from maybe the big pharma groups and you've got to maybe, and, and sometimes the packages aren't where 
the big pharma groups have, or they right. aren't, you know, they aren't the same opportunity. And there's probably different ways of attracting those people with what we've talked about, all different financial options. But ultimately, it's probably going to come down to, does this person believe in the product and believe in the mission in the company? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, one of the most powerful tools that companies can provide is, is culture. And, you know, when you're small, you actually have the ability to control and nurture that culture. As your company gets exponentially bigger, often the culture will change, will take a different direction because it's driven by the business need. But, you know, I always remember I was speaking uh, with a particular company. Uh, I won't name them, but they actually created um, like a psychometric testing system to test for cultural fit. And it was so interesting because everybody who worked at that company would come out and or even like contractors that visited and go, wow, what, what a great bunch of people. And, you know, I've always found that really interesting because when you think about what is it that you want people to feel, I mean, it, it's obvious, right? You want to enjoy going to work. You want to have a smile on your face. You know, it's it's the banter over the the coffee machine. It's the, the random 10 minutes where people put their tools down, you know, and they weren't just kind of head down, tail up. And, you know, it is the conversation you have, you know, about the recipe that you saw in a magazine it is the it's snowing outside so we randomly jumped on a sledge and everybody slid down a hill it is yeah. those little things that actually make the business world less ones and zeros and actually put the humanity back into it so if you work for a company where the leaders themselves lead with humanity with vulnerability and with excellence, then you typically get a, a greater sense of loyalty um, and actually much more buy-in. And as I think everybody knows, right, when you are absolutely loving life and you're loving what you're doing, then it, it, it doesn't seem like a very difficult thing to put in that little bit of effort or or things like that. Do you find that's actually become a little bit more difficult off the back of things like COVID? We mentioned COVID. I think that's quite an interesting topic to talk about because actually of the guests we've had so far, they've been massively impacted by COVID-19 because they work with physical products and it's right. not enabling people to get. So it's kind of a two-part question. The first would be, I mean, I guess for you, obviously the way you've worked has kind of changed, but actually there's probably been more opportunity in some cases because there has been such an investment in more biologics, more products, more COVID-19 solutions. How has COVID impacted your business, I guess, from how well you're doing as a, a company, but also maybe from how you guys are working over in San Diego? Because I didn't mention that before, but we're doing this interview from <laughs> London to San Diego, which is still, That's again, true. really cool. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I'd, I'd probably split it into two or three parts. So the first would be, how is COVID impacting the industry? The second would be, how is COVID impacting our clients? And then probably, how is COVID impacting us as a business? I think the industry as a whole, there's actually been some positives in as much that it certainly you know, focused the public profile on the industry. And in fact, I think from a PR perspective, it's done, it's done some wonders. Um, because you know, the pharma companies generally, you know, 
people like to think of them as these big evil conglomerates, basically. And, you know, to see that actually they are out there and they are making a difference and things like that. You know, I think that has been a positive thing in terms of how is that <clears throat> actually impacting what is going on. Well, what you find is that very early stage companies are generally just plowing along and quite happy because they know that they're quite a long way away from the clinic. And when I say clinic, I mean clinical trials. Um, the thing about clinical trials is you need people. And you have to get large amounts of people into a relatively small space in order to conduct a, a variable controlled trial. So typically people in phase two trials, which is kind of your, your mid-sized trial um, in layman's terms, they're the ones which are, are suffering the most because actually you can't get the people into the proximities you need in order to complete the trial. Um, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. So I, like even you guys think it, you, you see all this stuff and you see products, oh, look, they're picking up and there's right. these new clients and they're trying to do new trials and testing. But there's probably a whole realm of problems that are arising just from the fact that, yeah, they have to be in a controlled space. And that's it. You might have, you know, interesting. Yeah. And then on top of that, you've then got your later stage projects and things like that again. It's all about can you get a quantity of people in and, and what impact does that have? The thing which is, I guess, interesting is that when they've got commercial products or things like that, these still need to be produced. And the way that they are produced is, you know, you've got people in clean rooms with filtered air, um, you yeah. know, everybody wearing protective equipment. Um, and actually, it's probably the safest place to be is in the manufacturing hub of a facility because it's got the most purified air with the most safety equipment because they naturally don't want any form of contamination. So, I mean, they've been so many sites have gone through sending a lot of the non-essential workers home. Exactly. And, and that's been really interesting to watch in the market anyway, because if you were to look at jobs six months ago that were requesting work from home oh, responsibilities, yeah. they were getting rejected. They'd be like, no, you need to be on the site. Everyone needs to be on the site. And instead now, some of these manufacturing facilities are operating at 33%. And it. it's just the essential staff that are in on the on the site. And they obviously are being extremely careful. They're having people being quarantined and taking temperatures because, yep. you know. But you're right. It's one of the most aseptic, <laughs> clean environments you could be in, I suppose. That's right. I did hear of something great, actually. And just in case anybody's wondering if we live in the future, which is there was an automated keypad system when somebody was able to fit like a temperature monitor to it. So in order to admit your employees, you basically walked up to the door, put your head in front of it, it measured your temperature. If your temperature was okay, it let you in. If your temperature wasn't okay, it left you outside. <laughs> and uh, I just thought it was genius. You know, it's... yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, the nice thing is that commercial but, products but, are still coming through. So. But these sort of, um, you know, like there's always opportunity within these sort of, we'll, like we won't get too into depth into that, but there's always new technology that comes as a result of, you know, any sort of situation like this. And you've seen a lot of companies adapt overnight to add to either, you know, develop, uh, like Dyson went through a whole process of developing ventilators. That's it. There we go. That's the scientific term. I call them breathing McJiggies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the ventilators. And you see different companies adapting, again, to the need from a PR standpoint, also very good for companies that aren't maybe classically medical device or pharmaceutical companies. But you, then you there's also all sorts of technology that's popping up that's a result. And even probably new companies that are popping up as a result of like, hey, we need more protective screens and and 
you know, whatever, temperature-taking devices and even, you know, like apps and things that we're using now to do our day-to-day work that we're not being able to do in the office. So... Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I think if you were one of the lucky people that had invested in, you know, Zoom video software or Peloton bikes or something like that, <laughs> there there are certainly industries which have done pretty well. I mean, I buy on those Peloton bikes, but goodness, they're so expensive. Yes. They're cool, but I just can't get my head around the cost. I still can't do it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Um so yeah, I, I I mean that's the industry, right? And in yeah. the other impact to the clients, you're you're absolutely right. Like the ways of working, you know, how many Zoom calls. And it's funny because a lot of people have said, you know, wow, I'm exhausted. You know, I've done 10 Zoom calls today. Um, part of me does think, welcome to being uh, a recruiter. <laughs> um, but um, the funny thing is that actually, you know, we are seeing these new methods of working. I think the thing that's difficult is that actually you do lose, I'd call it organic communication. So, you know, like if you've ever run a team and you are coaching your employees as you go, the typical thing is you don't sit down, you don't sit everyone down and say, okay, well, now we will do a training session. You don't do that every day. You know, you you just hear someone say something and you're like, hey, by the way, maybe not that, maybe a little more of this, you know, something like that. It's, it's this t- tiny little piece of guidance and you lose that in a Zoom setting or, or something like that. So I, I know that that's been challenging one for my own staff and, and me, but also just across the board, you know, if you think about all the little conversations, the the four minutes you were able to catch someone as you were on the way to the bathroom and they were coming back and you were like, oh, by the way, ba 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 You know, you blurted it out, got it done. And now, you know, people are having to use email or they're having to use Zoom or something like that. And, and in fact, if a lot of people are also finding that their email traffic has gone up exponentially. Yeah. Partly because everyone sat on top of their inbox all the time and that side of things. Yeah, people are getting back to me a lot faster than you expect than they used to. <laughs> like, got nothing to yeah. do, mate. Because I hired someone three weeks ago, or almost a month ago, and it's the first time that I have ever hired someone only over yeah. video call. Never met them in person. We did like his presentation, his whole interview, then worked with him for four weeks through COVID before actually meeting him in person for a drink for the first time last week as kind of like his welcome lunch and drinks and stuff. And it was fantastic. I realized very quickly, it's not even, you mentioned rightly, like it's great being in the same office and and you guys obviously have an office in San Diego. Our business has, has been pitched as being remote and people are separated, but then we get a chance, we tend do a lot more of like, hey, we'll go for drinks right. or we'll go, we'll do some team builders. Like we'll take that money and, and go do something so we can meet one another. And you, it become, you realize how important that actually is. Like that hour I spent with Eugene was probably more influential than it was spending the last four weeks through different Zoom calls. Cause you actually get to, you know, know one another and have a, a proper chat and a discussion in the afternoon, et cetera. And that sometimes can only, can't really be replaced by Zoom calls and video calls and to be honest, I'm, I mean, I'm quite sick of them anyway. Like, you know, what? when COVID started, you'd start having like video parties, right? right? Like yeah. you know, <laughs> Friday drinks with your friends. And it was really fun, the first one. And then I've not done one since. I think it's <laughs> it wore off really quickly. So I think the challenge, I, hopefully if there's not like another spike, I know you guys are still, you know, trying to ride out the spike, it seems like in the US, <laughs> whatever the strategy is. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we dip and, and we come back, I wouldn't be surprised if we have to, 
you know, be in the same situation where we've we've got to rethink how we actually manage our teams yeah. and how you actually get to like get useful information to make sure that you can manage people properly. That's, uh, yeah, hundred percent. I think the other thing as well is that there are a lot of companies out there who are struggling from a sales perspective because they're used to meeting people in person. So, yeah. you know, it's funny how actually you know, the power of the handshake or something like that, you know, where people will say, you know, I stared into the whites of their eyes and was able to see whether or not they were telling the truth. And I'm like, well, hmm, unless you're like CIA trained, probably not. But it's, <laughs> um, it's funny because, you know, I, I know people who work for marketing companies and that's how they've managed to pivot is actually to provide and, and guide and educate companies on how to switch their mentality from in-person to online yeah. and what they need to do that. And then the funny thing is even for my own business, there's been an amazing opportunity. I mean, so much of what we did is based through calls and things like that. I mean, I probably had a telephone welded to my ear for probably the last seven years. <laughs> and actually being able to connect with someone Every week via Zoom or something like that, you know, these these are clients I've known for years. Yeah. And it really does help strengthen those bonds. So the interesting thing is, yes. I've yeah. realized there were so many clients for our own business that I hadn't even met in part. You know, I'd done too much right. on the phone. Yeah. And then because they're at the office or, you know, you don't get a chance to. So you're like, oh, I'll catch them when they've got, you know, five minutes in, you know, the hallway or 15, 10 minutes. So it's a lot of phone calls rather than video calls. Yes. But now I feel like even when COVID's over... I'll feel more encouraged to say, let's set up a Microsoft Teams meeting. Let's yeah. set up a, and it's actually made it more relaxed and a bit, you know. A human? Especially if you've got international clients, you know what I mean? Like, you, yeah. If you, yeah, or human, exactly. If you're a local and you're used to meeting them or going in, yeah, fair enough, like do that. But also, how incredible is it to just be able to say, oh, well, like, let's just do a video call, get to know one another. Yeah, I think it's really neat. And people are more receptive. I, I think so. And you know, it's quite funny. Sometimes you have to ask the question, why do we do things the way we do it? And where did this, if you'll excuse my uh, phrasing, where did this bullshit come from? Because <laughs> when you think about, you know, leaders or things like that, people will say things like, oh, well, you know, I, I couldn't possibly tell them about how I'm feeling. I'm like, mm, <laughs> you're not a robot. Like, yeah. you know, actually... Be, be a human being, turn up, show them, you know, show them basically your emotions, um, your heart and things like that. Obviously, I'm not saying break down in tears the first time you meet someone, but, <laughs> but um, you know, like good example, right? I've got a 12 month old dog on a Zoom call. She will often come and join me halfway through and, you know, in the middle of a pitch, it can be a little bit distracting, but I'll tell you what, most of my clients will turn around and go, oh, what a cute dog. That's yeah. amazing. Your, and, dog, your and, dog's clothes at the sale. Yeah. You do that on purpose, don't you? You yeah, know, get the toy out. Not at all. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's that kind of thing, you know, and, and the thing is remembering that, yeah, you know, this person might be a CEO or a COO or an SVP or someone super important or, or somebody who is perceived to be, you know, so much more powerful, advanced, whatever we want to say. But the reality is that person is just a human being too. And I think that's one of the marks of, you know, great leaders is will they bring their whole self to the situation and, and actually allow people to be themselves? 
You know, we're yeah. not, we shouldn't be squashing people into ice cube style, you know, molds and then knocking everybody out as squares uh, or cubes. Um, you know, the reality is we're all different shapes, we're all different sizes. And in fact, the thing that's pretty cool is when you look at that, we all bring a diversity of thought. And the diversity of thought is what makes for a stronger team. So it's, you know, it's one of those fascinating things. You mentioned, because I think it's really interesting now doing, like say, video calls or seeing people in their living room or hearing dog. You used to lose your mind if you were on a business call and like a dog barked or somebody made a noise in the background, you'd think it was so unprofessional. That's completely changed, right? Like, actually, you're yeah. right. People have a laugh when the dog's barking through because people all, agree, you know, agree with the situation that we're in. It's almost it kind of like bonds people a little bit, whereas 100%. maybe before they would have expected you to be in an office. So they were like, why are you, why are you being so, you know, where's this dog come from and how unprofessional and, and whatnot, as opposed to now it breaks down barriers. And I, I really like that actually you get to see people in their living room because they don't right. seem like this, you know, like you're in the office, like, oh, this guy's like this massive you know, boss man in, in these structures. And mm-hmm. then you have these calls with, with people that you've known for years or worked with for years. And you're like, oh, it's a nice, you know, nice kitchen. You know, like, <laughs> oh, <right." laughs> that's true. Um, and it does make it a little bit more, like say, human. Uh, that that kind of, it really kind of ties in well here because obviously you've come into recruitment and, and it's been sort of an area that you weren't initially going to go into. Uh, what, what kind of got you? I mean, I think everyone says that, right? I think every recruiter you speak to is like, oh, I didn't grow up thinking I'd wanted to be in recruitment. Um, but what's your story? Like, how <laughs> how have you even gotten now to launching a business? But what got you in the direction of going down the recruitment route anyway? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Disney <laughs> got me to go down the recruitment world. What? <laughs> yeah, right. I don't. I don't remember seeing that Disney movie. But yeah, the, yeah, the strangled true. recruiter. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, maybe it's like a Cinderella story. Who knows? Um, I think the thing which is, yeah, I, I mean, look, my my story. There are kind of a couple of elements. I'm, you know, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an engineer. I was actually trained as a musician, and went to university for music and studied music. But actually, I guess recruitment and me started much earlier than that. Um, and my affiliation with, I guess, medicine and being fascinated by science started earlier than that. So I just, the first time I've, I've ever actually said this in public. So if, uh, if it's not very smooth, that's probably why. When I was 11 years old, um, I had an older brother and um, he was 15. And through some fairly tragic circumstances, he actually passed away within a, a three-day period. It's a long story short, but at the time, my family and I were extremely poor, um, and he had gone out to some mudflats to dig for fishing bait. And in doing so, um, what we pieced together anyway was that he he probably threw down a spade and cut open his calf muscle, and the the mud and the, the things from the river got into it. And he died of meningococcal septicemia three days later. So fit, healthy, strong lad was no longer um, with us three days later. I was 11 years old, so having the nerdy brain which I was born with was able to remember a lot of the the words, the phrasing, and they somewhat got burnt into my psyche. (laughs) Um, So as I got older and older, you know, I, I kind of figured out what happened to him and things like that. And yeah, you know, full full transparency, you know, 
there was a lot of pain. There was a lot of struggle in in losing a sibling, um, and obviously my uh, you know my mum and dad losing a son. And what I found was that I spent many years trying to run away from that event, as you do. And I went to university. I studied music, and I kind of came out, and I was like, I will be a music you know musician, and kind of pursue that whole thing. So university graduated. And my my drive kicked in and I was like, oh, okay, well, let's start a, a music business. So I was playing in bands. I was teaching about 102 students a week. Um, I started off in, I guess, state-run schools, wound up in private schools. And, you know, by my mid-20s, I was working all hours under the sun. I couldn't work anymore. I was gigging in bands all over the place. And I was like, I actually went through some heartbreak around this time. And I was like, you know what? I've had enough. So I gave away my teaching business, which is really fun to do, by the way. If you ever get the chance to give away a business, supposed to sell it. So, I mean, first off, that what an you know, incredible hardship that probably instilled in you. And, and we'll probably talk about how you that's affected your move sure. after getting rid of this business. But you know, it's quite interesting that you've had an entrepreneurial mindset kind of already you know you yeah. built, like built up a business and then like you know probably because <laughs> yeah. i always find that people who step into even though you then went and started your own company but good talent acquisition recruitment people have to have that kind of entrepreneurial mindset i think you know be up open to running their own business or owning their own business and that just seems really neat that you got to do that with a, a passion of yours and then decided you might want to try something different yeah but, absolutely and it probably comes from my dad if i'm honest in his, I think he was maybe early 40s, he had owned his own business and then he lost everything. So, you know, I, we went from two fancy cars in the driveway to, you know, moving into a house where there was, you know, water coming through the ceiling, plants going through the walls, fleas jumping around the carpet. So yeah. to be taken that low and to witness that, uh, I mean, I was I was pretty young at the time. I must have been like nine, eight and then I saw him work every hour under the sun in order to support and rebuild his family. And with the support of my mum, you know, they have rebuilt their lives. So my example was definitely, you know, my parents and, you know, work, work hard. And, you know, again, interesting things, right? I was the second person in my family ever to go to university. So, you yeah. know, they you know, they didn't have maybe the same educational mindset or fact-based mindset or things like that. But I was able to take, you know, the lessons which they were able to show me and, and teach me and combine that with maybe this higher education kind of mindset to to go and, and do something different. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the funny part is that after... Do you think that work ethic, that work ethic instilled in you? Because you're, I mean, yeah. having known you for five years... I've just seen, I mean, you're the hardest worker in the room. You know, you're always, always <laughs> on it, always on calls, always, you know, sun up to sundown. And that really came from, I guess, not only, I guess, seeing the success of your father when you, when you were younger, but yeah. what an impact to lose everything and then have to re rebuild. But I, you, wit you do witness that. And I think it does make a big impact. You it's know, just, huge. Yeah. I think that was actually, had never really appreciated what it was. Yeah, it's funny. It, it was, reminds me, it's like, I'm not sure if anyone likes soccer, but um, soccer players, I think, are always a great example of, you know, there are those players out there who are very, very talented. And people say they were the most talented player, but they never go on to be successful. And it's because somebody every day rocked up to them and kind of went, hey, you're the most talented 
person ever. And it, that doesn't encourage you to work harder. And in fact, this is something I found when I was teaching is that with young kids, if you turn around and they, I was a music teacher, obviously. So when they played something really well, if I went, oh, that's amazing. You're so good at that. The next week they'd do no practice because right. they were like, oh, I'm good at that. I don't need to do that anymore. Whereas if you turn around and you say, hey, you worked really, really hard at that. And I'm really proud of you because it sounds awesome. The next week they work even harder because yeah. what they dialed into was that the reward came from the hard work, not the reward came from you're already good at it. And that's something which I guess, you know, flows through me. Um, I didn't necessarily realize it. <laughs> I just yeah. thought it was normal. I thought everybody was the same, but that was very much it. But people go through different, you know, it, we, I've interviewed different people, but also met a lot of different entrepreneurs. And it's, sure. it's funny, you get people that go through different pieces. You either are in, a, you kind of had a combination of both where mm. maybe as a kid, they've had a really poor experience. Like their parents didn't work hard. They didn't have a really great, you know, upbringing and they almost are successful to spite it. You know, they're like, oh, I never want to be like that. 100%. And it does, can foster a work ethic. And then alternatively, like in my case and in your case, you have you have the opposite where you have actually somebody or you watch your father or your mother work really, really hard or you and many times you want to match that. I found that with my my own father. He would, you know, I, he would work his day job, but he always liked to do all of his own projects at home. Sure. So he never it's mainly because he didn't want to spend the money on it. But that means like he would work all week late. Be doing his day job and then on the weekend doing the fixing up the house or moving something or like doing whatever work needed to be done. But he just wanted to get it done. So his work rate was like, and it was really just so he could have the rest of the weekend off, right? But I used to get roped into helping him with his projects. <laughs> I never, I never wanted him to think I wasn't working as hard as he was. And weirdly, that set me up for so much success later because every time I walked into a room or on a construction site when I moved to the UK or I, or I didn't care what it was, I just wanted to be the hardest working person in the room said, I don't care if it's the success or whatever. Anyone who looks at me will go, that person, I'm probably some of it came from rugby and sports and, and other things as you grow up where you go, actually, the more that you just put time and effort into something and you really have the work rate and the work ethic, yeah, good, you put yourself in more positions to be successful. And if it's come from something that you've, you know, discovered as a, you know, maybe been instilled in you as a kid, even better, you know, sometimes those experiences can mean the world to you later in life, even if they seemed really you know, shit at the time, you know, like, and it was a hard experience to get through. For sure. And, and I think, you know, there's, there's something which I'd, I'd love to talk about, which is intensity. Uh, intensity yeah. of work, I think, is just as important as um, volume of work. Uh, it's like the classic phrase, you know, a drip of water will, will cut a canyon if you, if you leave it long enough. I always used to like that. And then I realized that, yeah, that's true. But a fire hose of water on the same rock is going to batter it down a lot quicker. So I think, you know, that's one of the things that I think when you look at high performers and things like that, what do they have? And it's it's not just a passion for working hard or it it's actually a passion for working with intensity and then when you combine that with working smart then you know how does that work and you know recruitment wise things like that you know i used to get in 
an hour earlier than everyone else and work through my lunch break. But then I go home. Um, you know, I go home at six whilst everyone else was still there at seven. And I'm sure that people used to think, you know, uh, you know, where's this guy going? How does he do it? Or, or whatever. But what I also used to make sure was that I, you know, I wasn't dicking around during the day. And what I figured was that, you know, an hour early and my lunch break, which is an hour long as well, gave me two hours a day. Two hours a day over five days gave me a whole day's extra work. So I was actually working six days a week whilst everyone else was working five. And that's, and, and when you factor in, I came into recruitment late at 29, I was like, good golly, I've got to catch up, you know? So what I found out you know, now I'm 36, seven years on, I, you know, I run my business, I've got two offices, <laughs> one in San Diego, one in the UK, people working for me, et cetera, et cetera. And people go, how on earth did you do this? And it's really just comes down to, you know, how hard can I work with intensity and how much can I learn? And I, the thing that people also always ask me is, do you still play music? And the answer is no. Because when I left the music world, I knew that I had to focus on a singular goal. And that singular goal at the time was, I'm going to master this industry. And yeah. I always remember I had an old director of mine called uh, James Tucker from my first company. And at the time, I was driving this beaten up Peugeot 306, and he was the guy who drove an Aston Martin, right? <laughs> and we're driving along, and he just said, he was like, he used to call me AC. He was like, AC, you know, I know you've had a really hard first six months, and I, I did everything went wrong in the first six months. Like, I, whatever I did went wrong. It was, it was just repeatedly being kicked in the face. And he said, but it takes 10 years to get good at anything. And just remember that, 10 years. And I remember hearing that and going, I bet I can do it quicker than 10. <laughs> yeah. but, that, but there's also a part of your upbringing and things that you went through that helped you become more resilient because that's also the tough yeah, part yeah. coming into recruitment. So you, sell, you sell your music business or you, you, you give it away, which is you were, yeah. I cut you off when you were saying that. But what you are saying, so you just gave it to someone. You said, here, uh, yeah, kind of. take so, the reins. So basically the hardest thing was getting into the different schools. And, and the thing is, if you yeah. get into a school as a, the resident uh, instrument music teacher, you then got a population of students. Uh, I suddenly realized I'm explaining this in business terms, which I didn't know at the time. So you basically <laughs> had a population of students, which then gave you a captive audience and they paid your bills. So one school could be worth, um, you know, like, I don't know, 11, 13 grand a year, something like that. And the fun part for me is because I knew I was going, I phoned up friends of mine who I knew were teachers. And one of them, was this amazing guy um, called John Wills. And John is the nicest man um, on the planet. And um, I, I believe he continues to be so. And I gave him a call and I said, hey, I'm going to leave, but I can get you into this school. Is it something you would like? I know that you've just had your first child and I can definitely do this. And he went, you can't do that. And I was like, yeah, I can. Watch me. And when I resigned, I went in with his resume and I gave it to the head of music. And I said to the head of music, this is the guy you want. Like, I've built this from, you know, half a day a week to two half a days a week. I think there were like 
50 students in the, in this boys school all suddenly learning drum kit much to their parents uh, frustration I think um, they probably wanted a, a pianist <laughs> um, but John went in and, and as far as I'm aware he's still teaching at that school so That's cool. the the ability to do something nice for someone else and actually impact their lives it, it was huge and yeah. you know he was one of them and then there were like two or three or four other people which I kind of gave pieces of the business away and then I jumped on a cruise ship <laughs> and um, with a band who had never met and basically sailed around the Mediterranean for six months. Again, well, as a drummer on a cruise ship. As a drummer on a cruise ship. Um, trying, to, trying to escape, yeah, as I said, heartbreak and, and a you know, responsibility probably. <laughs> I had a wicked time. And the funny thing was that that, taking that leap of going to join a cruise ship, going to, air quotes again, find myself a little bit. I met people from all different countries all around the world. And one of my, my best friends in life came from sharing a cabin, which, by the way, is a matchbox, basically, with a toilet in two bunk beds. And I shared a cabin with this guy called George and... You know what? We he's like my little brother. So he actually, at the end of his contract, was interviewed by Bob Eisner. Bob Eisner was the old president of Disney, and Bob Eisner said, "I want that guy on my cruise ship." And George said, "No," but he said, "I know a guy who would." And essentially, that person was me. So it was actually um, it's a bit more of a story to it, but. An agent yeah. rang me and I described this uh, visionary band and he said, when can I see it? And I was like, cool, five days time, no problem. You know, next Wednesday, <laughs> book the studio, everything else. Hung up the phone and thought, hmm, I should probably I put a band. a band, probably put a band together. <laughs> so, We're getting the band back together. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I basically assembled the band, got us down into the studio we had 10 songs. We knew 10 songs. Um, we ran it the night before. We turned up. This guy turns up at 11 in the morning. We're all in three-piece suits. And there's a, a girl in a ball gown. And he walks in and we blast through 10 songs. And he goes, look, I think you're the best band that we've seen in a tremendously long time. Um, how many songs <laughs> really? do you know? Yeah, Five days. How, how many songs oh. do you know? And I was like, a uh, hundred. Uh, what just is kind it? Of making it up. <laughs> and, um, and then he goes, how many more do you need to learn? And I was like, a hundred. So he was like, great. So took that video, sent it off to Disney. Disney said, we really like these guys. Let's give them the contract. So I then transcribed 210 songs in 21 days. So I averaged 10 songs a day. Christmas didn't really happen that year, but, um, yeah. So basically, transcription is just listening to music and then writing down the music based on what you hear. So did that for 21 days straight. And then at the end of 21 days, got the entire band down to a studio on the Isle of Wight where I lived and rehearsed them for 12 hours a day for five days straight. Turns out it was a bit ambitious and a bit much. But, um, 200 songs, yeah. yeah. I think that's, what a commitment to so go from we, like... A hundred? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we basically whipped our way through and then got the gig, flew off to LA and spent two years working on Disney cruise ships. So, but 
Oh my god! Oh yeah. So you so, you did, you were on cruise ships for like two and a half years. I didn't even know this. I know yeah. you didn't stint, but that's yeah. a long time to be like yeah. jumping up and banding it up. It yeah. must have been a crazy adventure. I, it was, and you know, again, the thing that I'm so grateful for is just the diversity of people that I met. I mean, every creed, every color, every religion, every race, like in all different parts of the world, and also getting paid to see all these amazing places. So. Very, very, very cool. But usually you have to work like six days a week, don't you? They get their like yeah. pound of flesh, don't they? You, you get like you they, get your Sunday off or something, don't you? They do, but I was a musician, so we used to work at 11 to 14 hours a week. <laughs> All right, brilliant. So, so it's, we, were, we were living the life. I spent yeah, a lot brilliant. of time in the gym and, and basically getting a suntan. Oh, amazing. So, but the funny thing is that at the end of it, I, I just realized I didn't want to be a musician anymore because being 50 years old, playing in a bar at 3 a.m. to a bunch of 25-year-olds, you know, and with dreams of having a family and everything else was just not, that didn't really compute, you know, it didn't seem stable or anything else. So I actually went to see Disney HR and I said, what can I do? And this lady called Jamie looked at me and just goes, Alex, you really like people and you can definitely sell stuff. So have you thought about talent acquisition? So I had no idea what it was when my contract ended. I went home and I got dressed up in a suit like I was going on stage. Yep. And I printed out a resume and I marched down my high street and I went into every single recruitment firm I could find unannounced and asked them for a job. I found about 14 different firms and they all said no went, nobody does that today do you no, know what i mean no no one even because that wouldn't have been that long ago was i so that's still what six years ago uh, yeah i yes. wouldn't have thought of doing that six years seven ago. years ago yeah yeah like this isn't the 70s that you know, just put that perspective for people <laughs> listening in right like this isn't like back yeah. in the day this was that's this true. was like what 2000 13. <laughs> uh, yeah, it would have been 2013. That's right. So basically... People must have been looking at you so weird. Yeah. Because like def- nobody comes in and does that anymore. No. I got I 14, love it. I got 14 interviews, but yeah. they all said no. And the last one was a company called Erect to Wreck, um, a recruiter that recruits recruiters, right? Which still blows my mind. And they turn around and went, the reason why everyone said no is because you're coming in telling this crazy story about starting bands and sailing the ocean and you're talking to people that do high street recruitment and they place like municipal workers, these guys empty trash cans. Yeah. Like, that's not you. You know, you're, you're someone else. But we work with a company that work with Global 500 companies and they're going to love you. That became my first firm. Whilst I was there, I, after six weeks, I got promoted into the European team and as part of a three-man team, was asked to build their European division. It was funny, actually. Um, three of us, young guy called Alan, um, John, and myself. And we built their European division. I, I mean, I had six weeks trailing on a telephone. I always remember my, my first boss, again, James, just saying, you know what, business development is very hard. It's, you're going to hear a lot of no's and things like that. And my first day business developing came back in the afternoon and went, got two director roles based in Switzerland. What do we do? <laughs> <laughs> so, what is this? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, you know, that I mean, I've was, been rejected that, 14 times yeah, on yeah. a high street. I'd be like, <laughs> are you shitting me? <laughs> yeah. So it was yeah. just, it was just hilarious because what I found was, in recruitment, there are many, many people who don't understand their industry or what the people do 
all bothered to go beyond and think about how do all these roles fit into the overall business system. And I never really knew that I had a a mind that was built like this. You know, I was a musician, I was a creative, right? And here I go and I'm entering the business world and, and my music training really came to the forefront because for anyone who's learned music, the way that you learn and you're taught to learn from a very young age is that you play through a piece of music and you get to a bit that you fall over on. Say it's, you know, two bars long or eight measures. And you're like, oh, somewhere in here, it, it all went horribly wrong. So you just focus on those two bars and you play it along and you, you realize that maybe measure three, four, and five are the ones that you suck at, basically. So you would then learn measure three and you just loop it. And you're like, learn measure three, learn measure three, learn measure three, then four, then four, then four, then five, then five, then five. Then you'll do three to four, three to four, four to five, four to five, three, four to five. And then you'll do measure two, three, four, five, two, three, four, five, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And I didn't realize. I'm already lost. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, so basically what you do is you chop it up into little tiny components, learn each component, gotcha. and then reassemble the components. And the thing which is absolutely crazy is they just taught me how to problem solve and how to yeah. identify a challenge or a, something which we didn't know, break it into a process or a system, and then reassemble it. And that is most of sales. It is most of business challenges. It is It is all of that. And what I didn't realize was that I naturally did this and that nobody else or very few other people think in that way unless you are an engineer or a scientist or something like that. So me getting into, I guess, recruitment, I immediately started looking at you know, how does this business function work? How does it interact with all the other business functions? What are the key challenges within each individual part and breaking it into components and then asking questions about those components to the very people that we would recruit? They're the experts. I'm just the guy with the questions. And the quality of an answer is only as good as the question you ask. So you've actually highlighted something, especially if people are coming into this episode who are thinking about doing recruitment or have worked in recruitment or have done, the way you've just explained how to get underneath your industry and understand what you do is fantastic because you have a lot of people that come in and they think they need to know everything, right? So, you know, you get people that join the company and they go, well, I need to read all these papers and I need to I need to understand exactly every function and how it works, you know, and I'm going to read all of this stuff before I actually speak to someone. And what you've just said is especially perfect. It's like, actually, you just need to, you don't need to know, you're not the scientist. You don't need to know how to make the, the product or finish the solution, but you do need to know how to break it up, how it impacts the rest of the business, and then understand what their challenges are and find solutions to those challenges. And that right. is so like impactful because you, and then you're saying, well, that, even though I've broken it down and I figured out what's what I need to be working on, I also still need to be able to like, speak to people and learn it from the experts and right. talk to as many people in my industry and let them teach me what I don't know. And then if you, you combine that over seven years, you might actually have a semblance of what's going on. I mean, I obviously still am <laughs> like, I think people go, oh, you, you know all this stuff. I'm like, no, <laughs> I wish. But there's, it's an interesting, I really think that's cool that you picked that up from music and applied yeah. it to something different. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, 
you have to remember these guys, you know, that we work with, with PhDs, MBAs from, you know, the best educational institutions in the world. So who am I to tell them, you know, precisely how to do the specifics? That's, that's not what I'm there for. But what we should know is what are those challenges that they face when they're doing it? And then ultimately, we should be able to, you know, ask people about those challenges and learn what people's responses are and then talk to them based on that intel. So it's kind of take answer A from, you know, um, per candidate A, if that makes any sense, and pose it as a question to candidate B. And if you get a different answer, when you're speaking to candidate C, ask them about answers A and B. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, it's, it becomes this organic way of, of learning. Um, and actually, it's based on fact. It's based on everything else. And never, ever be afraid to say, hey, you're the expert. Can you educate me on that? Because a lot of these brilliant people are very, very happy to share their knowledge. Yeah. I, it makes it some of the most fun parts about working in this industry, in life sciences, because you do get to gain so much knowledge and, and listen to so many cool, you know, like say people's stories and their missions and what they're trying to accomplish, but also get a thorough kind of under, an understanding of how some of it's done. And like say you break it into pieces, then you can ask the right questions and break down any problem, right? And then, you know, find a solution to it. Yeah. So then you spend, you spend, so you go into your first company, you build up this European division. And then after that, is that where you then moved to yeah. our old company, to I, old I, Proco Global? I, it was, yeah. And there were a number of reasons. I'd actually, whilst I was on cruise ships, I fell in love with an American girl who was living in New York. And ironically, she was Snow White. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> and essentially, the plan was that I would always try work my way to the US. And after being told that it was impossible, realized that what I needed was experience. And then to find a British company with offices in New York. So I found one of those, which was Proco Global. I applied and they said, yeah, well, you know, we'd love to interview. I went in and that's uh, where I met my first boss, Brian, um, and love that man to death even to this day. So grateful for him. And, you know, um, essentially got the gig, went in. And I remember my first day, you know, he was like, right, you're doing manufacturing in biotech. I was like, cool. <laughs> What's that? Like, I had no idea, like none. And I remember saying to him, what does the director of manufacturing do? And, and he looked at me and he just went, I've no idea. Figure it out. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, back to the beginning we go. And, and that, that's where it started. I mean, my, maybe the, the thing that was funny is nobody in the company knew what manufacturing was in biotech. So after two or three weeks, I, I realized it was a very small piece. So I just asked people, do you mind if I call this technical operations? And they all went, no, that's totally fine. Little did they know I'd just given myself license to build eight markets simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually, you know, that was the, the underpinning of, of everything that I do now and just followed the same kind of procedure of, you know, learning about these markets, being educated by, you know, the experts in the market until I could actually have an intelligent conversation with them and then always looking beyond. So what is the impact that these functions have on the business? And then as you become more tenured, 
you know, you start to think about things in a wider business context. So what is the impact that this has on the business? How does that affect things like fundraisers? How does this affect, you know, where the company is trying to get to in terms of commercialization? And that actually led to the formation of this idea that the right leader in the right place at the right time actually expedites the deliverable that you're trying to work towards. Conversely, the wrong leader in the wrong place at the wrong time does an untold amount of damage. Um, and yeah. you really want to avoid that. Interesting, because you look at, um, like you're saying, with different companies, getting the right leader in at the right time and focusing on that and figuring out, okay, what does that actually mean? For, what's the result for the business in that case? It means that you can speak you can speak to that, to your clients, understand their pain pressures, and also understand, look, if you don't find the right person, how much is that going to cost you versus what my services might be to provide for you to make sure that you do absolutely see the best person that at least is available on the market? Um, whether you're comparing that against internal talent or whether you're looking at other options as well, it ends up becoming quite invaluable if you can go, well, what happens if your product doesn't make it to commercial because you've not invested or, or spent the little bit of extra money for the right candidate? Yeah, I, I think that's very true. I think the other thing as well is you also have to think, what is the, I, I don't want to be too kind of recruitment-y about it, right? And, and think about that me, it's, it's actually when you take recruitment out of the situation and you just go, right, what is your timeline for commercial launch? And if they go, it's five years and you can then go, okay, well, looking at that timeline, the, the key struggle points that everybody else hits are this, 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 and this. So what are you doing to proactively solve those challenges opposed to react to the challenges when they come along? And then yeah. if you do that by bringing in the expertise before you hit those challenges, what is that going to do again to your deliverable? And if they can steer you around that, then how much does that allow you to improve the timeline? Then when you look at that and say, well, okay, let's say you got to market a year earlier and you say, well, you know, what does that do? You know, if you're first to market or something like that and you're able to get a larger portion of market share, then that's increased revenue. Maybe that's, you know, expedition of an exit or something like that. So you then go, okay, and now you're working with me and yes, we have a fee and that fee is this, but now you know why my fee is this. Because if yeah. we can accelerate you past the way you think you can go, then, you know, I've paid for myself, you know, a hundred times over. So, you know, it's, but that conversation right there, that's not a recruitment conversation. That is a straight up business conversation, which when you are talking to, you know, your, your SVPs, your VPs, your CEOs, that's what they want to talk about. The thing that a lot of people, and, and certainly, you know, originally the way that I was trained is they would also try and get you to, you know, destroy HR and all that kind of nonsense. Such yes. a ridiculous thing because not only do we have to find the right talent, but, you know, HR is the custodian of culture. It, it, they are the people who know what is going on. And if recruitment companies actually woke up and went, these guys are not trying to make your life harder. They are trying to make it easier. And you know what? Their job is bloody hard as well. So... If you make their life easier 
and you are a joy to work with. You look after them as people, you serve the business and you deliver what the business needs. How can they not work with you? Yeah. You know, and it, it just goes to, I guess maybe that's my Disney training coming through, right? Which is how, yeah. do, you, how do you create a little bit of magic? Happily ever after. No, yeah. no, but, but you see, <laughs> yeah. there's, this, there's this concept to Disney and, and I, all right, I'm going to get on my Disney horse for a little bit, but um, Pegasus, um, basically, <laughs> um, but basically the whole concept behind Disney is it's, it's like the longest sales cycle in the history of the world. It's a 20-year sales cycle. So if you take an eight-year-old kid and you take them to Disney and that eight-year-old kid has the best time in their life and it becomes one of those childhood memories which they cherish. When they have children, where are they going to go? Yeah. And as a... I still tear up at Disney. Yeah. Still and, go there and have a, you know, everyone yeah. has that experience. And, and as a staff member, what they used to do is they used to say, create a little bit of magic for... You know, a kid, especially a kid. And I'll, give, I'll give you an example. My nephew went to Disney. I mean, I, I knew all these things and I kind of had a chat with my brother. Uh, my nephew went to Disney. He was really young at the time. He was like kind of three years old. And they got an ice cream and gave him the ice cream. He's walking back to his table and he just goes, you know, head over heels, drops the ice cream, obviously like nuclear style meltdown of a little kid. <laughs> and... You know, one of the, the Disney staff members or cast members, as they're called, ran over to him and were like, hey, is, is he OK? And like my brother was like, "Ah, we've just dropped our ice cream. And this, this cast member said, no problem, scoops Ryan up and picks up the cap, grabs my brother, pushes the queue out the way. They go all the way back to the ice cream machine. She takes the largest pot of ice cream and fills it up and says, hey, do you want to pull the handle? And this little kid is like, yeah, I want to pull the handle. <laughs> like, fills it up full of ice cream. And then, you know, they take him back to the table and, and he's the happiest kid in the world. Yeah. That, that didn't take much. It didn't cost much. It just took the ability to, to, to see what would be needed and then to be able to deliver it. And ultimately... Yeah. That going the extra mile is the thing that to this day he still goes, you know, love Disney. Yeah. And this is, you know, and that's where you've kind of applied that same thought process to working with your clients. Yeah. Creating that little bit of magic, going and over delivering, giving them an experience that they wouldn't experience with other recruiters, which does allow people to actually not only just build trust, but build a, a long term partnership with. Right. And if you can do that, that's the key. Yeah. By the and, way, this episode's not sponsored by Disney, although there's been a lot of shameless Disney plugins here. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, no, I mean, it's the classic, right? If everybody else is going right, then go left. Yeah. It, it sounds so obvious, but like, especially now in times of COVID, right, you've got a lot of sales organizations who are struggling for revenue. And ultimately, that means that everybody's email marketing campaigns have gone into like 10x in terms of output, which nobody seems to be thinking that what is that doing to the recipient's inbox? Like yeah. right now, everybody's got 10x of emails. I guarantee you they're not reading any of them. 
not and it's, not and a it's single scramble. Thing. Yeah, people are scrambling, and, and it's it's not it's easily noticeable. And quali- quality you know, it, it alienates the, clients. Yeah. yeah, quality is down, and volume is up. And yeah. what's the the fastest way to to annoy anyone is just send them a whole bunch of random nonsense which they're not interested in. So the challenge in times like this becomes how do you differentiate yourself and also how do you continue to drive value and and go from there. I'm not going to tell you the answer though because that would be giving my secrets away. (laughs) (laughs) And you, you, so you've got to, I think this is kind of getting us to the end of your story which is brilliant, but you went through this recruitment experience. You took a lot of your upbringing you took a lot of things that you learned through music through disney through all sorts which is incredible to hear this story just to hear how actually this has made this cocktail of you know success i suppose all these different elements that you could yeah. pull and draw from were you always thinking you were going to start a recruitment business on your own did yeah. you what led you to go <laughs> i'm going to do it yeah no i was i was always thinking that you know there is I'm just, I I always say to people, maybe I wasn't the best employee because I don't like rules which are pointless and I don't like doing things which are inefficient. So for me, when somebody says I need this and I need it in 12 hours and I'm like, but it's pointless. Like, you know, that's, that's not a good thing. Like one of the companies I worked for, I remember walking in in my first week and we were talking about minimum standards. What are the standards that you should have? And somebody went, the minimum standard is that every consultant should work 55 hours a week. I'd been there four days and I went, bullshit. And everyone was like, who the hell is this guy? And I said, well, why would you want somebody to work 55 hours a week? Because the, the hours is not what determines success. So if they work 55 hours and they're not hitting their targets, then all you've got is a demotivated, unhappy workforce, which doesn't deliver. So I'm going to be honest with you. I want my tar- I just want my consultants to, to meet their targets. If they can do that in 20 hours a week, fine. Take 30 off. Go I don't home. care. Like, yeah. Absolutely. Like, so, you know, it's, it, it's really important that we make sure that we focus on the things that are important and don't get bogged down in fluff. And that when you are measuring stuff, that you're actually measuring stuff which has Im- impact and is relevant. You know, time worked is is the worst measure of effort. And I guess you get an opportunity now with your own business to drive those values. And that's probably been the big driver for you to, to do that, I suppose, right? Is that, you know yeah. what, this is the way I want things to be done. And because you guys, are, how long how long is the business operating now? Two year, Over two years now? Two years, yeah. In our first year, you know, with a team of one, <laughs> me and one other, you know, we we grossed over a million dollars. And in our, our second year, with a team of three, we're we're on track to do the same. And we've opened, you know, a European office. When I think the thing that I've had to realize is that the first, you know, the first year, which was me and a researcher, I was just absolutely determined to break that barrier and I wanted to prove to myself that I could now my role has changed so now my role is to enable other people to break that barrier but also you know your your role as a leader evolves so you know COVID's a great example you know I had to sit my team down and say look the expectations that we had were pre-pandemic now we are post-pandemic therefore what does success look like this year 
And I, I'll be very, very honest with you with where our industry is. Success looks like survival. So if you've got enough money to go again next year and you might not make a huge amount of profit this year, but if you've got enough money to go again next year, you did really well in 2020. And that's one of those things. But where you've got a bunch of high performers, they 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 want everything that comes with high performance. You know, they they yeah. want the commission, they want the salary and everything else. But there's no point kind of flagellating yourself in a world which just may not give you that. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try, but it does mean that you have to manage your own expectations. Um, and and just from a again a leadership perspective, you know, my my role, I had to try as now as a CEO. So you've got to kind of do the whole business running thing. You've got to do the whole frontline recruitment development thing and the like business development and everything else. And then on top of that, there's, you know, keeping an eye out for opportunity and moving forwards. So what I found is I had to become enormously more efficient in order to deliver at the same level. And the there's lots of theories like marginal gain theory and singular focus theory where you, you try not to subdivide your attention between multiple things because you, you basically divide your resources. And then I had to learn some things the hard way, like energy. Man, energy is finite and time is finite. And I tell you what, when you split yourself five different ways, you run out of those things real quick. So... You know, as an owner, you have to recharge and, and try to do that part. But yet you've also gone through a point of taking your business from being, when it just, you know, when you start as yourself and, you, and you're billing for yourself, and yep. you're kind of like your own independent consultant. And then you're responsible, like say your responsibilities are different, but you can get into what you do best all the time, 24-7 to scale. And just to put it in perspective for people who are tuning in. You know, that kind of revenue is insane because in recruitment, if people haven't been in it before or in executive search, I think executive search is the better term to use here. <laughs> you literally create your own product. Everything that, that Alex puts into his process is there is nothing that has to be made elsewhere. It's He has to find the lead, find the client, deliver the service, close the deal, invoice, send the invoice. It's from why it becomes such a valuable area for people to work in, whether you want to go in and doing something for a commission or whatever it is, is because you literally are given the blankest of slates and it says, go find, build, develop, and invoice. And to do a million dollars in year one is one absolutely fantastic. I mean, we, when you did hit that up, we obviously got a chance to talk and it is Unbelievable. It's an incredible accomplishment. And it's led to so many awesome opportunities for year two with opening the office in the UK and adding, I think you moved from New York to San Diego and you got to add yeah. people into the team there. What an amazing move, by the way, as well. I'm sure you're loving it in San Diego. Yeah, um, it doesn't suck. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's, you, you've been now on a, a projectile, but what's really cool, and I hope if anyone listening in can take from Alex's story, is you can see what it's, it has kind of molded him to where he is today, but also why I wanted him to come on the podcast is he ended up working extremely hard and he's still putting in long hours and his role is obviously changing, but he's identified that. And he's investing in people and he's, he's trying out new things and it's at its heartbreak and, and hardship, but it's also been extremely rewarding to from the outside looking in to watch and see where your business has come from. And especially for an inspiration for my own my own business to see where you've come from, what you're building and, and how you continue to drive and, and 
partner with your clients. So no, man, it's been, it's been an awesome journey for you so far. And I think you've got a long, you know, still got lots more to do, but it's still today. It's been great to just, just see it, to witness it. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're, we're not done yet. Um, and I, I think the thing that I would always encourage people to, to think about is why, why do we do the things that we do? Right. And, and kind of goes back maybe to something that I, I mentioned earlier, like, don't be afraid to look at the process, the system, how does it fit together? And, and are there ways to make that more efficient from, from my side, you know, um, you know, recruitment is, is one element, business ownership is one element. Um, but also just to focus in on, on people, um, and actually care, try not to become a robot. Don't, don't make everything a, a total platform, you know, it's, it, that's not what it is. The process may be similar, but your personal touch is what makes you. And ultimately that can go on and, and become your business. Um, in terms of, I think, what does that translate to and, and what doors does it open? Um, I'm not sure you know this, um, Nate, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm basically, I find myself writing a book about everything that I've done because again, one is a bit of a training manual for my guys, but also it, it's that sort of thing which gives you greater clarity. You know, being able to really distill what you believe in and be able to share that with people, right? It's so obvious, you know, everybody in a relationship says, you know, the number one thing is communication, yada, 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 yada. What does that actually look like? How do you communicate? Like, because communication is maybe best expressed as articulation and not being fearful of maybe somebody else's reaction. So if you can articulate well and you can bring your full self to the table and you are there to make sure that you deliver a, a product or a service which is way better than anyone else, then you, know, you have those ingredients to create something which is just absolutely world-class and industry-leading. And if you work in an industry where it has a shitty reputation, um, and just be blunt, you know, recruitment does, you know, there's a lot of people that sell their grandmother down the river to make a, a quick buck. Um, and the reality is, so if you don't like the game, change the rules. Move that bar so high that other people can't compete and make it that other people look at you and they go, I could work with these guys, but they don't give me all the stuff that I get if I work with these guys. And maybe they're the same price. So it's, you know, it's all about how do you, how do you get yourself out there? And, and that's it, you know? Wise words of Alex Cook. That, I mean, Alex, it's been an absolute pleasure <laughs> having you on the show, man. Like I honestly, like, like I say, I was nervous. It's always weird having people on that you know and it's personal, but it's been fantastic. And look, I'm, I wish you all the best. I'm going to be obviously following along on your journey with keen eyes and I'm sure we'll be welcoming you back on the show sometime soon. Yeah, please do. And if anyone's got any questions or things like that, feel free to to reach out if you want to have a chat then you know that's that's what i do for a living <laughs> so uh yeah always always feel free and and they what a what a pleasure you know i'm 
so pleased to see Impel doing really well. And, you know, things like this and this medium, you know, it's it's nice to to not be alone in, in an industry and know that, you know, there's you're one of the good guys, mate. So really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to another fantastic episode with Alex Cook, CEO and founder of Phase 3 Search. You can check out more about their business at www.ph3.bio. And that's www.ph3.bio. And tune in next week where we have Laura DiCarlo, CEO and founder of Laura DiCarlo, a sexual wellness company looking to bring equality to sex through pleasure. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button.